Phantom Sway. We make stuff you'll love. Seriously, check us out. PhantomSway.com Hello and welcome to How Inappropriate, the podcast where we ask the question, could this movie get made today? I am your host, Kira Allen. Um, I'm so glad you guys are back with us for another episode. I have a very special guest with me today. I have Christian Toto. He is the editor of HollywoodInToto.com and host of the Hollywood in Toto podcast. Christian, welcome to the show. Oh, thanks for having me. I love the topic. I'm so glad. I, it's really an honor to have you here. I read all of your film reviews. I've always been a fan of your writing, so it's really a privilege for me to uh, talk to you about this movie. Our movie today is the 1978 National Lampoon's classic, Animal House. First of all, Christian, before we get started, have you ever seen this movie before? You know, I have. I'm sure I've seen it multiple times, but... I have not seen it in a long time. I mean, I think we could be talking decades. So it was really interesting to watch it again. And as much as I watched it with fresh eyes, there were so many lines and so many comic bits that were just ingrained in my brain. So <laughs> I didn't have the sense that, you know, when you watch a comedy and if, it, if the joke is funny, it surprises you. Like you, you forget yeah. you, how funny it was. I, I didn't find myself laughing, but I really kind of marveled at a lot of it, which we'll get into as as the as the talk progresses. Yeah, I actually had never seen this before. Oh wow! Yeah, so this was my first viewing, and I was really when I finished, I was like, okay, I can't wait to talk to Christian about this because I think, <laughs> like, on a, there, I had a few different thoughts, and of course, as you say, we'll get into the, those along the way. But I was really glad that I had a man on the show this week because I think this is a guy's movie. And so I was kind of glad to have a male perspective. And I think this is a movie of its time. And um, maybe for that reason, I didn't enjoy it as much as I thought I was going to. So I'm, I'm anxious to like get into those reasons why. And I, I think as we move forward, you'll hear me kind of struggle with this idea of like, am I just biased because of my my age, my generation? Um mm-hmm. And that I just don't understand the humor, or is it just like a bad movie? I don't know. <laughs> I, I'm going to make my case. I didn't really enjoy it, but let's get started. This movie was written by the great late Harold Ramis and Ivan Reitman. Am I correct? I think so. Actually, I think Doug Kenny was a co writer. Ivan Reitman, I believe, might have been a producer, producer on the film. I was checking out some of the credits. And then John Landis, who went on to do American Werewolf in London, is the director. So I've been kind of steeping myself in a lot of the behind-the-scenes lore of the film, which we'll get into as well, because there's a lot of cool little casting uh, bits of information and and just sort of behind-the-scenes stuff we can talk about. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a lot of interesting stuff um, for that. So this movie was shot in 1978, and it takes place at an Oregon, 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 Oregon University, a Faber College. Uh, and the time period is 1962. That tells us when we open on it. And we, we basically see a lot of um, vignettes of college life. You know, the quads and guys walking through the stately halls and the stately um, walkways of the college. And we meet two young men who are going to a fraternity party to hopefully pledge for that fraternity. I cannot remember the name of the fraternity. I just 
keep referring to it's, it as the bougie fraternity. <laughs> oh, that one. Yeah, much. <laughs> that's that. That's all you need. Yeah, <laughs> it's just this the fraternity with the guys with sticks up their butts. Like that's, that's it. That's, that's exactly what I was thinking. <laughs> or as my grandmother would say, sticks up their dupas. <laughs> I love that. I'm stealing it. Dupas. Okay. <laughs> um, and so we we have two. You know, one's kind of the the fat loser, and we'll find out that he's you know fat loser is his character trait throughout the film. And then we have, I guess he's our protagonist. I don't think so, but the way that it's, he's kind of the everyman, I guess you could say. I mean, yeah. I think we're supposed to connect with him a bit because he's kind of a nice guy. He's not really part of the Delta team but he kind of rolls with the punches so that, i mean I, I i you know watching it fresh i actually thought he was going to connect with the karen allen character like maybe she would yeah fall for him. i did think that too yeah but yeah. It never quite happened no and in in watching it i felt like there were a few missed opportunities in this movie which we'll get to and again mm-hmm. i think that'll be a discussion of is that just my modern sensibilities versus missed opportunities but they they are going to the bougie frat house party hoping to get invited to pledge and for right away we start out with a moment that i think is wholly inappropriate would never fly today (laughs) the fat guy doesn't you know he doesn't want to go in he's nervous and you know his friend tells him don't be a fruit you know (laughs) like yeah there are a couple of lines i I actually wrote down notes for the movie that's like oh yeah that's but you know there's two things going on here you mentioned maybe not of its time, but this is a 1978 movie based on 1962 culture. There's like kind of two levels that we're digging in. And one of the reasons why a lot of these jokes just wouldn't fly today. No, I think you're absolutely right. That is an important thing to note. I mean, this is the cusp of the 80s, but it's really a movie that takes place in the 60s. And Harold Ramis said he chose that time period because he felt that was the last innocent moment in American culture which everybody says that you know like i would have said the day i would say the day before 9 11 was the Mm -hmm. last innocent day in our culture but for hell ramus it was before jfk was killed and uh so he said it in 1962 so you're right they're working within that time frame and the historical references of that with the cultural sensibilities of 1978 america yeah, and just thinking about sex and drugs in this movie, there's a sequence where uh, Donald Sutherland's character lights up a joint and they shut the blinds and they lock the doors <laughs> like it was – I mean I, I live in Denver, so it made me even laugh harder. But uh, – and even just the way they speak about sex, it's not nearly as, uh, I guess, free as it would be later in the 60s, let alone today. So again, fascinating. As, as raunchy as the story is – by today's standards, is actually kind of quaint almost. 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 It, there were parts, parts where I was like, oh, that seems raunchy for 1978. Like, I didn't expect to see <laughs> that. Right. But we get uh, – it's uh, – I just called the fat guy as fatty in my notes because that's basically his <laughs> character, fatty. And um, every man, Larry, they get to this uh, frat house party, and it's a lot of stuck-up, like, buttoned-up Republican types. And – they immediately get placed with the outliers, like the outcasts, the people that they clearly don't want in the fraternity, and they don't want hanging around this party. And the outcasts are all brown people and disabled people and a nerd. <laughs> like, yeah, you know, I thought if they made that today, there would be talk of white privilege. And I think 
they get that point across without even having that kind of dialogue. It just they show you that couch with the people of color sitting on there thinking, okay, they have no chance of getting in. This is a sort of preppy ultra white group. And I just thought it was it was a rather clever way of showing it without kind of getting into too too much uh, expository in a way. I think that's very interesting. That's not at all how I read it, but you you saying that is like, oh yeah, that is kind of kind of clever, I guess. And and uh, I did laugh. You know, the fatty uh-huh. kept trying to break out and have conversation, <laughs> and they just kept putting him him back there. Uh-huh. The main uh, buttoned up Republican dude. Uh, gosh, what was his name? Greg, um, the blonde mm-hmm. guy. He, I kept thinking he looked so much like Mark McGrath from Sugar Ray. Oh yeah, good call. Yes. Absolutely <laughs> At first, I was like, "Wait a second, is this something?" Where like I'm figuring out that Mark McGrath is a crisis actor. You know, he's <laughs> not like he's really been this one guy this whole time. <laughs> Just I, yeah, I thought about him every time. But then we also meet. We see Kevin Bacon in this movie. Yeah, I was read he was. A, I, I read a little sort of the bios, a lot of the people behind the scenes, and a lot of them were struggling actors just starting out. And he was a nobody, and doesn't really get much screen time. But obviously, he would go on to do greater things. Yes, he played Chip. I thought, yeah, I'm like, yeah, Kevin Bacon. Got everybody. Got to start somewhere, I guess. That's right. He was in also, I think, the first Friday the Thirteenth movie as one of the quasi-anonymous victims oh, or, you really? know, sort of the blandless faces. But uh, it took a little movie named Footloose to kind of set him free. Yes, a classic, which we are going to do on this show. <laughs> but anyway, <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, I love it when that happens. I mean, I did I did Dirty Harry with a colleague of mine um, a few episodes ago. And if you pause it at a certain point, like for about 0.5 seconds, you see a thief in an alley, and it's Denzel Washington. It's like a 17-year-old really? Denzel Washington, yes. Oh, I didn't know. That's a great find. Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, well, my husband <laughs> noticed. We were watching. He was like, hold on. Is this Denzel Washington? And we went back. We're like, oh, yeah, it's Denzel. And he is uncredited, but it is confirmed. He has confirmed that is him in the movie. Classic. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, so they end up getting booted out or leaving the the frou-frou frat it's it, they're not down with it and they head on down to fatty's brother's um frat and so fatty says well you know i can get a legacy pledge so let's go pledge there <laughs> and it's the most disgusting place of course it's dirty it's run down it's delta house they run into a, a, a john belushi he's out front peeing and drinking and you know, they go in, and this place is, <laughs> this house literally made me sick to my stomach. It's just so <laughs> gross. But uh, he, you know, we kind of see them weaving through the crowd and meeting different people. And you think, okay, these people are more affable. These people are more interesting. But we run into Karen Allen at the bar. And I swear, every time I see this woman in a movie, I f- it's almost like I breathe a sigh of relief. I'm almost like, oh, Karen Allen, she's so beautiful. There's something about her that's very down to earth. I mean, she is beautiful, but she doesn't. She seems approachable in a way. I guess there's a different kind of beauty for her. And uh, it's kind of a shame that in recent years she just hasn't done much. I know she was in the Indiana Jones reboot and didn't get much screen time or much of a role to play there. But uh, yeah, she, you know, back then she was uh, as an actress a hot commodity. She was popping up with a lot of important films, and uh, she's good. She is good. I think you're right. She just has a presence. It- I almost, 
want to say it's like a tomboyish presence, but it does add to, I mean, and then she's a stunning woman on top of that. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think of her, her my favorite performance is in Scrooged with Bill mm-hmm. Murray. You know, I love that. But yeah. I, I have in my notes, like, here's Karen Allen. Like, she has always been the best wet blanket you need to grow up love interest. <laughs> you know, <laughs> that's what she is in everything. <laughs> that's a great point. And she's really the only adult here, the only one looking to the future, thinking about a career, a life, and uh, everyone else is resisting it to as much as humanly possible. But she's she's ready, and she's ready to move on, and she's hoping her boyfriend will do that. And it looks unlikely as the movie goes on. Yeah, no, she's great. Um, I do have... Uh, she does make that little crack about our two more of our protagonists, I guess. Stratton and Boone. Hi, Eric Stratton, Rush Chairman. Damn glad to meet you. Hi, that was Eric Stratton, Rush Chairman. He was damn glad to meet you. Who are upstairs uh-huh. in, in the luxury pad. You know, they're the head of this frat. And she makes a comment of, oh, they're upstairs getting ready for the party because they're well-known homosexuals. Like, there's a lot of gay jokes in here that would never fly today. Oh, yeah. And also I wrote that and she said at one point about her boyfriend, I think I'm in love with a retard. Mm-hmm. Again, your line you can't use. But listen, if you were making a movie set in 1962, you should use all those lines because that's the way people spoke back then. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. I was just thinking about all the young kids. I've read a story about how young kids are watching Friends now on Netflix and they're all triggered because there's a lot of like transsexual jokes in the show. And it's like, man, we have accelerated you know what is culturally culturally acceptable in the last 10 years but before then a lot of this stuff never would have even you know people wouldn't even raise an eyebrow this was yeah no it's it's and this is, I, I would even go the last five years, the culture has changed so dramatically. So uh, you really can't hold past movies accountable, and they got to take it from the context of the times. Yeah, absolutely. So we see, you know, Karen Allen's char- character is put out with her boyfriend, Boone. She wants, basically, it's just, she wants him to grow up. He wants yep. to run this dirty, nasty frat and have fun. <laughs> and then we cut to, I call him Dean Dirty Harry. Because that's what he seemed like. But we cut to the dean of the college, and he clearly hates this frat. He wants to get this frat off campus. He talks to Republican Mark McGrath, and he says, (laughs) you know, we need to find a way to pull their charter. Like, these guys are causing me problems. I'm trying to, like, do this thing with the mayor, and they're getting in my way. Like... I have unlimited power to preserve order, which I was like, whoa, that's a lot of power for a dean. (laughs) Unlimited power on a college campus? Who dumped a whole truckload of fizzies into the swim meet? Who delivered the medical school cadavers to the alumni dinner? Every Halloween, the trees are filled with underwear. Every spring, the toilets explode. You're talking about Delta, sir. Well, what's interesting about uh, I read that Jack Webb from Dragnet was offered the role initially, and he turned it down because the, he, he thought the, the script was too dirty, which I, I understand. But, uh, you know, one of the things about the Dean character, John, I think it's John Vernon, I believe, is that almost every role in this movie I thought was really perfectly cast from the majors to the minors. I think just everyone, everyone was right on target. That's one of the things I liked about the film. That's funny you say that because um... – the part of Stratton was originally written for Bill Murray, 
And then mm-hmm. Boone was going to be um, Brian Doyle Murray. And Harold Ramis wrote, oh no, Harold Ramis wrote Boone for himself. Brian Doyle Murray, I think, was going to be John Belushi. And I guess Harold Ramis was very upset that John Landis wouldn't let him play the role that he wrote for himself, but he was too old. They said he was 32, but it is interesting how things work out because I felt the same way. I thought, well, I couldn't really see other people in these parts. Yeah, yeah, especially, I mean, Belushi is Belushi. I also read that uh, they auditioned, oh, God, it might have been Meatloaf, the singer, right. when they wanted to track him as sort of a plan B, but it was Belushi's role to be taken all along. And then Chevy Chase was going to be in here, too, but he decided to take foul play and thought this role was kind of too small for him at the time. I'm glad he didn't. I don't think Chevy Chase would have been right for this film. Yeah, you know, he's, I mean, he's a star, especially back then. So I think there's a nice balance to the cast here. I think if you had a Chevy Chase, maybe that that balance would be out of whack. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, We, this movie is really a lot of vignettes. Christian, let me ask you this. Yeah. I was watching this film and I was thinking, and probably I was thinking too hard which is probably part of my problem. But I was thinking, what is this movie about? Is this movie about a frat that needs to overcome this obstacle so they can stay on campus? Like old school? Yeah. Or is this movie just a movie about boys will be boys? I think it's the latter. I I think it's – and I think – Boy, I think it might have been attributed to either maybe Caddyshack was the uh, snobs versus the slobs, that kind of a thing. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a lot of that going on here because it's the disheveled, grumpy, drunken guys who are at war with the sort of clean-cut, nice, strict folks. And they're the enemy, really. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of a slice of college life. I think some films demand a real strong story. I don't think there is one here. Not that it's a bad story, but it doesn't have sort of the motivations, the 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 obstacles, the resolution that you think. It's it's maybe a celebration of a time in your life where you can do all these kind of crazy things because the rest of your life you can't. Yeah, I guess that makes sense to me. I was trying to make this plot happen in my mm. head, and I was like, "Why? You know, what am I watching?" But they're just they're going here, and then they're doing this. It's just really them you know, going off and doing dumb things. So I guess I couldn't really relax into that very well. Um, I have to say that the first genuine, like, guffaw moment, I had some giggles, but my first genuine guffaw moment was when um, the Delta guys were picking the pledges and they go and they spray them with the, you know, the extinguishers and they get them up and they line them up and they give them their names and then they make them say the pledge and then they, you know, raise your right hand. Now say, I state your name and they all go, I state your name. <laughs> I don't know why, but that just tickled me so much. But- I think one of the things that's interesting about this movie is that there are a lot of the kind of the blueprint for college comedies to come was set here. I mean, a, a lot of times you'll have a Belushi-type character. He's a little chunky. He's over the top. He's crazy. He drinks too much. He kind of sets things in motion. And I think so, I, I, it just feels like a, a lot of comedies, even if they didn't directly ape this movie, the, 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 there's sort of the DNA in, in, of, of Animal House and, and future comedies like this. I think you're absolutely right. In fact, I was going to ask you about that. I wondered if you might know more than I do about that genre that it, is this kind of the first of its kind? Because I can think of like half a dozen 
different versions of this movie, like Revenge of the Nerds or Van Wilder mm -hmm. or, you know, it's just kind of a tried and true formula. Is this the genesis, do you think? You know, I was trying to think of kind of rowdy, body, R-rated comedies before this. And, I mean, we get them all the time now. We get like a dozen a year. But back then, I don't think we got it quite like this. Uh, so, I, I mean, I'm sure I'm forgetting something, but I think this was – I mean, we think about like the Hangover films today. Mm -hmm. Every movie's R-rated. Every movie's got that shock moment. Uh, there's something about Mary with the hair gel and, and Hangover with all the right. stuff that goes on in that mill. Right. I mean, that's sort of the normal now or uh, the American Pie series. Mm. So, and I, and I think what this film does at times, not a lot, is that there's a little bit of sweetness there. Like when, when they were auditioning the two new pledges, the, 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 <laughs> they didn't want uh, the man who would become Flounder to be part of them, even though he was a legacy. And then I think it might have been uh, Tim Matheson's character stood up and said, you know, when you guys first started with mm -hmm. us, you were kind of losers too. You didn't, you didn't have a, a bounce in your step. You weren't cool. And now look at you. So, I mean, it was – there were little moments throughout the movie where they're not really that bad. They actually mean – don't mean to be mean. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And I, I think that the best R-rated movies today have a little bit of that sweetness. And I think Judd Apatow is really good at that. Yeah, I, I agree. That's a very good point. Um, definitely, you know, the legacy that Apatow uh, pulls from. And we see that contrasted with the pledging for – the bougie frat, because that's just yeah. Kevin Bacon getting spanked, you know? <laughs> Please, sir, may I have another? <laughs> Please, uh -huh. sir, may I have another? Now, let me ask you, you, you didn't see the movie before. No. But were there lots of scenes or lines or jokes or bits that you knew? Yes. Yes. Okay. That was the thing. So I, I was making notes along the way. I'm like, oh, like, this is where this reference yes. comes from. I thought there'd be a lot of that for you then because I, think, I felt it watching it just now. Absolutely. And I had seen it before. Absolutely. Suddenly there was a lot of conversations I've had over the years that made way more sense knowing where these things came from. And it uh -huh. was, you know, um, eminently quotable. You oh, know, yeah. there were a lot of little moments, and, and I mean, I, every guy I know quotes Animal House. Over? Did you say over? Nothing is over until we decide it is. Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? Hell no! German? Forget it, he's rolling. And it ain't over now. <laughs> every guy I've ever known in my life quotes Animal House, so it kind of was fun. To sit there and see that stuff and be like, oh yeah, now now I get it. <laughs> and another, I think my another moment where I genuinely guffawed was them celebrating the Delta celebrating after they swore in their pledges and they get drunk and they sing Louie Louie, <laughs> uh -huh. but they don't really know the words. You know, like no <laughs> one knows the words to Louie Louie, so they're all like a Louie Louie. That's right. There are two words you have to know, and that's all that. That's all you need. <laughs> that's it. I love that. It's like in all these years, that's never changed. And I mean, one of the things I think is so good about the movie, and I want to get – you have some critiques of the film, which I definitely want to dig into, but I, I want to share some good stuff. <laughs> the music, I mean sort of the Louie Louie and, and some of the old-time songs and shout and even the sort of the – the score in some of the comedy sequences, I thought was really perfectly put together. And I think it's one of the, when a movie becomes a cult hit, there's a lot of reasons why. I think that's one of them because the soundtrack is so good. It's so memorable and it's so well integrated into this, into the story as well. 
I, I absolutely 100% agree. I think that is a trend that carried through the 80s. And I think that's why a lot of 80s films are so beloved. So the all of the, um, you know, like the Rat Pack movies, mm-hmm. like St. Elmo's Fire and Breakfast Club, they all have great soundtracks. And they all have very, like, dirty dancing. You know, I, I honestly think that sometimes a movie is elevated by the pop songs <laughs> that it chooses. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's a really good point. Here's a quick anecdote to just show my age. I was working at a uh, video store in the 1980s when Dirty Dancing came out. And the movie, we used to have like a little um, request sheet. Like if you wrote your name down, we'd hold the movie for you. And when that movie came out, the request sheet blew up so big (laughs) that we had to change the policy at the store to you can only reserve a movie a week in advance because there was like weeks and weeks away that people were putting their names down. I, I... I'd love to talk about that movie. I don't feel like it's bad enough to talk on this show or like old <laughs> enough, but I don't know. I might do it because that's a yeah. great movie. Yeah. But same thing. Like you can mark a, a memorable movie by the music moments. And I think one thing that I love so much about film is how much every element works together or doesn't yeah. to give you an experience and movies that do that. Well, do it like animal house where it gives you an experience that you carry forward. I think that's an excellent point. Um, we do uh, get introduced to Professor Corduroy, uh, who is <laughs> <laughs> Donald Sutherland. Um, it, I have in my notes, like, when did this start? Like, who made brown corduroy suits the official dress of <laughs> college professors? I don't did know he if have was... like patches on his shoulder, on his uh, elbows. I looked. Sure. He didn't. I did oh, look. Okay. <laughs> he did not. But we see him. He's teaching English. He's clearly not really that interested in his job. It was just kind of fun to see a young Donald Sutherland. Yeah, honest. a couple of quick things. One, he got thirty-five thousand dollars for that one day of work, and uh, that's he, he insisted on on getting paid handsomely for it. So, uh, and I think someone worked with him on a p- previous movie. And that was it. Might have been Kelly's Heroes, and that's where they kind of get the connection there. But it was interesting that he he wasn't sort of part of the Delta Rebellion, but he was kind of rebelling against the material he had to teach. He said, "Yeah, this is kind of dull." So mm. a very very interesting kind of thing you don't expect from a college professor. Yeah. Now, to your note about his salary, I did also read that he got seventy seven thousand for the entire shoot, but he was offered points on the back end, so he was offered Ooh. a cut of the box office, and he turned it down because he was pretty sure it was going to be a oh. bomb. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> so, he has since said he regrets that decision. I can see that, that's for sure. Yeah, <laughs> but I, I was, my mom was a huge Donald Sutherland fan. We're from Eastern Canada, and he's from Nova Scotia, so my mom was always, like, huge Donald Sutherland fan. Um, so every time I see him, like a young Donald Sutherland in a movie, I, I kind of think about back home. And, yeah. Um, and I also – If you want to see the same look of Donald Sutherland, check out a great movie, Invasion of the Body Snatchers. I was just going to say that's shot, I think about that. Yeah, shot around the same time. I think it was around 78, give or take a year or two. And uh, he had the same exact look, and that's a wonderful film. So that's why he got that role. It has to be. It was just his <laughs> eyes and his face is so bizarre, and it lent itself yeah. to the bizarre nature of that film. That film still haunts me, by the way, to oh, this day. Yeah. Me too. Oh, yeah. Um, well, let's uh, move a little forward. We see that Fatty has joined. Is this the ROTC on campus? Is this I was confused by that element of it. Was it part of the school's uh, – 
programming that you had to be in ROTC. I was a little, I didn't quite get that connection, honestly. Yeah, I didn't either. He just showed up in a field and they were doing military exercises uh-huh. and the bougie frat guy was in charge and he was a jerk, of course, and he hated fatty because everyone hates fatty. Even the horses hate fatty. They just hate, you know, just he's a loathsome character. Even the people who like him hate him. Um, <laughs> but, um, yes, but there was a moment where he's up in his face and he was like, what is this, a pledge pin? You will report to the stable tonight and every night at 1900 hours. And without that pledge pin, do you understand? He just keeps saying that over <laughs> and over again and I was just... Cracking up because I was picturing them filming that scene over and over and over again and that actor getting his face spit in over and over and over again. Kudos to him for holding it together. He suffers for his art. He did. And I've been in that situation. I'm a trained actor myself and uh, I've been in that situation and it takes a lot of self-control not to reach up and wipe your face off. Yeah. <laughs> it really well, it's instinctual, does. right? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. But I just, I, I had a hearty laugh at, at that one. Um, and then we, we see that um, we meet the Donald Sutherland's professor in his home. Now Karen Allen is taking Boone and Larry every man over and they're going to go smoke pot with the cool professor. And this is kind of where yeah. we see like, then we get to hear Donald Sutherland, you know, say, well, I'm just teaching to fund my, you know, till I write the great American novel, <laughs> like every professor's <laughs> dream. <laughs> he's going to change the world with his novel that he's been working for four years on. But um, yeah. And uh, it's just a scene where I guess we get to see, this is another point Christian where I was thinking, this is a movie of its time, and this might be a trope that I can't really connect with. The I like what was happening in the scene where they went to smoke pot with the professor. I just didn't understand why I got that scene. Was it just well, funny think, that he was smoking pot? I think it was maybe sort of the even the professors were sort of part of, part of the counterculture, or maybe more specifically because Karen Allen's character ends up having a brief affair with him. So I think she was. I think she was admiring him and comparing him to her boyfriend who was kind of juvenile and here is this more sophisticated, mm. thoughtful fellow. And I think that she kind of connected with him. Although even that subplot, I think, is doesn't really get a lot of attention and doesn't really have a lot of weight. It didn't. They didn't milk it. for that was. I have a couple of spots in my notes where I'm like, I feel like they could have gone further with this or this didn't get milked enough. Mm. That did not get milked enough and i'll talk a little bit later about boone's reaction to finding out that his girlfriend is sleeping with the professor i'm gonna go all like feminist on that moment (laughs) (laughs) but um uh we see fatty he's stuck feeding the horse in the stable and i'm like even the horses hate fatty like the horse is trying to stop (laughs) him down (laughs) he it just no one likes fatty and but here come uh, John Belushi, and I think it was oh, I forgot to mention that D Day is Bruce McGill in this movie. You know what's so weird about it? When I watched the movie last night. I, I that's and I thought, what did this guy look like later in life? And I'm thinking, oh, then I yes. saw I was like, oh yeah, I've seen this guy a million yes. times. Yes, he has been the irascible, um, staunch smart mouth maybe foul mouth cop 
older cop char- character in every movie since yeah, this time. Yeah, he's got a very specific type about him. Yeah. yeah. No. And he works a lot. He works a lot. I just was so shocked. I'm like, man, and he's always looked 40 years old. Like, <laughs> <laughs> he looks like an adult. He looked 40 in this movie, and now he looks 40. He's probably 60. So Yeah. No, he's always one of those actors that just always looked the same age. And he had just this middle point. But I was like, oh, hey. That's cool. Man, this guy's been working forever. <laughs> That's a great career. Uh, but they decide to get even with the bougie frat because they're treating Fatty so bad. Hey, they're the only ones that should be able to treat Fatty bad, you know? That's right. So they get the horse up to the dean's office and then they give Fatty a gun uh, loaded with blanks and tell him to shoot the horse. And the horse ends up having a... Um, a heart attack. Holy shit! There were blanks in that gun! I didn't even point the gun at him! Holy shit! There were blanks in that gun! Maybe he had a heart attack! Holy shit! And it, this is a moment where I thought a movie like this could not get made today. This gag could not fly today because. If this was a movie set in 2018, that hallway would be filled with security cameras. You know, uh-huh. there would be somebody with an iPhone taping everything. It made me think that there's a reason why we're seeing a resurgence of movies and TV shows that are going back to the 90s and to the 80s. Oh, yeah. And I think part of that is the social media where if you want to make a story without Snapchat and Facebooking teenagers, you have to go back to uh, the analog era. So, yeah, I agree. Yeah, it creates a more... It's a easy, it's a more simplistic base to tell a story from, and I don't know. I just had that moment of like, oh, that's it's that's kind of a sad thing that we we have lost that ability, and it made me yeah. yearn to see more stories that don't depend on technology. Uh huh. There was a teenage drama. Oh, and I'm I'm gonna draw the blank. I'm gonna I'll, I'll look for it in a second. Um, but uh, it was said just before the social media revolution. And it was so refreshing to see these teenagers in college just hanging out and connecting and fighting and falling in love and doing all the stuff that teenagers do without that social media component. It was just – it was set before it. I thought, oh, I'm really happy it was because I didn't want to see that at the time. Yeah, social media really drains a lot of – I mean film and TV is about human connection. It's about showing that. and So technology drains a lot of that out, and I think it takes – more creative writers to make stories set in modern times that don't rely on that. But that's what I thought about when I, I saw that. And um, this this scene of that comes next, I have in my notes, of John Belushi in the cafeteria when uh-huh. he's taking all that food. This was one of the spots where I was like, I'm having a problem with this movie. Because I feel like I want to laugh but I also want to root for these people like I want a story and it just seems there's like there's a lot of different scenes in here that are the only reason for the scene is the gag but and so John Belushi stuffing all of that food into his shirt and stealing all the cafeteria food and then he's eating things and putting them back but then he's taking things and I'm like does he need to put the things back if he's taking things too you know, why does he put, I thought, well, maybe there's a scene where he has to pay for all this and he doesn't want to, and that never came up. And 
it really annoyed me that this was just a scene about watching John Belushi stuff his shirt with food. There was no payoff. Well, I mean, I, I for a comedy, I think you can stop the movie to kind of let the jokes fly. And and one of the things I loved about the movie, and I didn't realize this at the, when, after I watched until I read about it, was there was a lot more dialogue with John Belushi's character, and they cut a lot of it out because he was such a good physical comedian. Mm-hmm. And I thought that little cafeteria line was like his little is kind of his mini tour de force just the way he looked around the way he stuffed the snacks the way he ate the food the way he put stuff back it was he was this guy who just didn't follow society and i thought i found it funny so i you know i think at some point you do have to let sort of the wild and crazy characters be wild and crazy and uh but a, a quick note about that scene you know you think about the food fight when he screams it and, and all heck breaks loose. What I didn't realize is that after he screams food fight, in a second, the food fight is over and we're on to the next scene. But everyone remembers, oh, my God, the food fight scene. Yeah. No, <laughs> it just it was a cut like an, in a blink. But it was all the lead up to it and all the sort of the chaos and all of his his antisocial behavior that kind of it makes it all kind of magical to me. I think this was the point where I started thinking that this character, John Belushi's character, I think is his name Bluto, Bluco or Yeah, Bluto. Bluto. I think it he would have been much funnier if he never said a word the whole film and then yeah. had that big speech at the end. That is a great suggestion. Because I mean they they almost do it. He's yeah, pretty almost. silent. Yes. But if they had held it completely. Yes. And then all of a sudden he uncorks that speech. That's a great suggestion. Yeah, like if every time he was mad, every time he was upset, like it was just all the physicality of it because you you make a great point like he has this great comic physicality. And they use it, but I felt like it was weakened a little bit by the dialogue and and I think it would have been more compelling if he if he had been like a silent Bob type, you know, <laughs> yeah. like kind of a mute dummy and then has this zany speech <laughs> at the end. So that yeah. was another place where I was like, oh, I feel like this was a missed opportunity um, for that. But uh, again, the other thing that the other scene I was was the peeping Tom scene where he gets the ladder and he goes to the girls dorm. And, of course, he <laughs> witnesses a topless pillow fight because that's what every guy wishes girls in college did. But um, he – Well, po- here's a couple of thoughts in that scene. Yeah. Uh, first of all, you talk about things they wouldn't do or couldn't do today. I don't know you can make that scene today and still make him the hero of sorts because, I mean, these are, all the, these are all the guys we're rooting for. You're right. Ultimately. <laughs> and if you, if you root for a guy who's – peeping on women and doing those things. And that's going to, that's going to cause a ruckus. And also I want to connect two scenes. which I don't think I connected when I saw it in the past was the Gary guy, the, the sort of the bourgeois fraternity guy. Mm-hmm. So there's two or three scenes where he's with his girlfriend and she's trying to arouse him for lack of a better <laughs> phrase. And she can't do it. And then you flash forward to the Bluto scene where he's looking at the girls and getting so intrigued that it pushes him off the off the ladder, and I thought that was interesting. That that sort of they were saying that he was more virile than the. the am, am I drawing too much into that? Maybe I had I did not make that connection <laughs> at all. I guess I 
Well, no, in a way, I did feel like it was an indictment of that buttoned-up Republican Uh culture. You know, it's like, these guys are basically homosexuals. (laughs) And they just... Or maybe even asexual, really. Right. They're so into their money and power and status and snobbery that they don't even have time for having normal sexual thoughts. And that guy is in every move. That guy is in Van Wilder. That guy is in PCU. You know, that guy Mm -hmm. is in all of these... Like, we were talking about all of these raunchy college comedies that came after that guy. He's always, you know, the some hot girl's boyfriend. But he's, yeah. like, bad at sex and, <laughs> yeah, asexual. Uh, yeah. I, so I guess that's a trope that did carry over. I did – I actually did laugh when his girlfriend was giving him a hand job in the car. And finally she was like, you know what? <laughs> If you don't want to do this and she pulls her hands up, she's got gloves on, rubber gloves, and she pulls them off. She's like, if you don't want to do this, I'm not going to bother her. Yeah. And another thing about the movie, John Landis is the director. I think this might have been his second film. He had a very small career. I mean, he was a young guy. What I like about the comedy in this movie is that a lot of times with humor, the director or the way the film is shot, it'll – really put an exclamation point on the laugh or the gag or the punchline. This movie, the, the, all the jokes just happen, and it's it's a more subtle approach. I just thought it was a very mature and sophisticated way to do it. Like her peeling off the gloves is very funny, but it's not really given like a big showcase. It's just like part of the scene. I, I, I don't know. It just it, – it, it had a a restraint to it as much as the comedy is over the top. There was something about the way it was presented, which I thought was pretty good. Well, see, those were the moments that I did appreciate when they did put those little, I guess, for lack of a better term, like Easter eggs in. But just like yeah. they, they don't really comment on it. It's just a little jab and you don't expect it. And it's uh-huh. that's my favorite type of humor, actually. But then yeah. there's scenes like the latter scene, which it doesn't advance any plot. It doesn't have any purpose other than to get to john belushi falling off the ladder and Mm. i thought that was like this is hitting but i guess this is national lampoons this is what my husband told me when i was complaining about it he's like yeah Yeah. but this is national lampoons that's what they do they hit you over the head with the comedic bits yeah so were you watching it with him then yeah he was in and out he's seen it a bunch of times because he's a dude you know (laughs) he Uh loves it you know he, he was like this is a classic and i told him my problems with it and he's basically said most of what you've said less <laughs> less intelligently maybe but yeah just he was like this is a movie of its time you know so yeah, and also you know what we talk about raunchy comedy the the girls kind of post bridesmaids are just as raunchy as this in you know the way that the movies are made today so you know girls trip and and rough was a rough night with uh, scarlett johansson yeah, terrible movie and uh yeah bad movie <laughs> right bad. girls uh, trip but, awesome but the but now the women can be a sort of uh, cranky and raunchy and wild as the guys and that's that's something they never would have done back in 78 i would argue that it's the only thing you can do these days i would say (laughs) there's no way you can make another run not in 2018 maybe we'll the pendulum will swing back yeah in a few years but for this day and age you could not make a girl's trip like with the guy, with with a bunch of guys, that has a whole different connotation with the Me Too movement. And yeah, everything. You're right. I would say you have, if you're gonna go raunchy, it has to be women. You have to like inoculate it against whiny millennials. 
Yeah, and and this is I think a problem with comedy, which is maybe veering more toward the ideological. But I think there are so many unwritten rules in place for comedy now that there haven't been many great comedies the last few years. I mean, there've been a lot of clunkers. There've been a lot of R-rated movies that don't have a lot of laughs. And I think that com- comic writers are hamstrung. I read an article where they were making uh, Neighbors 2, the sequel to a very funny movie with Seth Rogen and Rose Byrne. And they had two women on the set, and their job was to sort of make sure this was empowering enough. Yikes. Now, empowering is not a bad thing on the surface, but I don't need my comedies to be empowering. I need them to be funny. And I think and – the, and the movie itself was not very funny as much as I enjoyed the first film. So, yeah, the, I, you couldn't have a Bluto in 2018, I don't, I don't think. I really don't. Your Bluto is Christian Wig. That's it's, right. It's yeah. Melissa McCarthy. Is Melissa McCarthy? Yeah, yeah. yeah I, oh, that, and the, the, the movie I mentioned before was uh, the Perks of Being a Wallflower. That was that uh, the teen uh, oh, dramedy. I haven't seen that. Was, that. It's wonderful, and it's set, I believe, just before social media came of age. So, uh, I recommend it for two reasons. One, if you're sick of people tweeting and stuff, go check that out. But also, it's a very good movie. Great, great. I'll put it on the list. Yeah, I, I would say again. I know we're veering off, but just. One more point. I went went to see Girls Trip, and um, I watched that movie. First of all, it was a real treat as a black woman to see a female-centric black comedy in the mainstream. Mm Because black people go see these things all the time. I mean, they always get made. They make them all the time. But to see something mainstreamed like this was a pleasure. I live in Orange County, California, so I was the only black person in the theater, uh, which was fine by me because I talked all the way through it and laughed all the way through (laughs) it. But the whole time I kept thinking, this is maybe the last good comedy I'm going to see for a while because those women were allowed to say things that they couldn't have said were they white and male. So the ideologically speaking, you know, you talk about where we're at, how that kills comedy, like that, it seemed like that was the last bastion of like mm-hmm. free comedy. I mean, they were raunchy, they made race jokes, they made sex jokes, they made, you know, horny jokes, and it just wouldn't fly with a group of white guys. Um, yeah. So I don't know, if you still want to laugh at comedy, go see black movies, I guess. If they're the <laughs> only ones that can do this stuff anymore. Um, we see that, uh, Okay, another missed opportunity. There's this thing with the tests, the lithograph machine, which uh, that's what they call it, right? What we used to print our tests on? I think so. If it isn't, that gets the message across. I I think it is, but I'm not 100% sure. I think it is. Yeah. Where you roll the ink, you know, you dip your paper in Mm -hmm. ink and you roll it and it copies it. I mean, I can can smell it just talking Uh about it. Um, So the old secretary is, is doing tests and... The Delta losers are going to go steal the psych test copy so that they can do well because they've got to do well. If they don't do well, the dean's going to kick them out. They have one more chance. They only just have one more chance in this movie. <laughs> the dean's <laughs> like, you have one more chance. So they've got to pass the psych test. But the bougie frat boys get there first and give them a false copy. Yeah. And I thought, okay. If this movie was that, if this movie was about like, guys, we've got to do A, B, C, and D so we can beat the system and stay stay on campus, I'm on board for that. But that was just a tiny little part. Again, it was something that never paid off. Um, I felt like there were no challenges for them really to overcome. It was just a movie about boys being boys. 
Well, you know, there's a, there was a movie uh, like a year or two ago called Everybody Wants Some. It was sort of set in the early 80s, I believe. And if you want to talk about a lack of plot with a college movie, well, it makes Animal House look like a structured three-act <laughs> extravaganza because nothing happens in that movie. But I, <laughs> I understand what you're saying. I, I they, they could have injected something a little bit more, more uh, prof- not profound, but engaging because – even when they get kicked out of college, spoiler alert, they don't seem to care that much about it. They, I think their egos are hurt more than actually anything else. Yeah. And and perhaps, again, this is another problem with, you know, be, me being a woman in her, I'll say 40s. That's all I'm going to say. In 2018 <laughs> versus this time period because I kept comparing this to old school, which inarguably has its roots in this movie. But what I loved about old school was that it had, it had a story and it had the stupid, silly gags, all of that and the gross out humor. And it had like a goal and a challenge to overcome. And I had a reason to like some of those people. And I didn't really like any of these people. Maybe John Belushi. Yeah, that's a tricky one because you know Otter is kind of a jerk, and and so is Boone in a way, and and I, it's hard to even define Bluto's character. Uh, and then you know we keep picking on Flounder the fat guy, but he really wasn't very likable. He was annoying. He was he, he was socially awkward. It wasn't just that he was heavyset. He just wasn't just a. He was the guy that if you were at a cocktail party, you would just clear out of the way to get out of a conversation with him. That's <laughs> so true. You're right. So in the beginning of the movie, I had in my notes, this is wrong, the way they treat this guy. You know, all this body shaming. <laughs> and then by the end, I'm like, he's a loser. You know? right. <laughs> like, I would want to be getting away from this guy. I get it now. <laughs> he should be shamed. I think all of us have had that friend in college or high school that it's like, you can't really get rid of that person because they're almost like, the pet, you know, and it's like they said, other people are going to treat this person bad. We're not going to let that happen. We're going to be the only people that get to treat this person bad. Cause- and, you know, yeah, I think it's a missed opportunity where they maybe could have made him like maybe if he evolved into someone who is either a little charismatic or maybe was a hit with the ladies or maybe was certainly somehow comfortable in his own skin by the end of the movie. And I don't even think that little transformation happens. No, and there was an opportunity for it. So they (laughs) they have this toga party because they decide, like, we're in trouble. What should we do? Well, let's just throw a party. And Uh they throw a toga party, and he comes in with his his steady gal, and she's cute. We were on double secret probation, whatever that is. We can't afford to have a toga party. You guys up for a toga party? Toga! Toga! Yeah, that makes no sense, comes out of nowhere, and I I don't even think they reference it again. Never, and he brings her in, and I'm like, oh, okay, you know what? This is where we get to find out that as much of a loser as he's been this whole film, he's actually a charming guy, and he's like a nice guy, and he has this cute girl, and she's like hot, and maybe she's rich, and they're like, oh, wow, I can't believe he scored. And then he left her with Eric Stratton, and he's charming and good-looking, and I thought, oh, okay. I see where this is going. He's going to seduce the girlfriend. I thought that too. Yeah, but none of that happened. And so I thought that didn't pay off at all. And that kind of annoyed Uh me that that it was even in there. And yeah, you're right. She never comes back. In fact, they go out cruising for girls later. And maybe if he was shown to be actually rather um, not debonair, but very gentlemanly toward her, 
like treated her like goal and kind of escorted her around the party. And maybe he was oddly proud of his goofball friends. It might've made him endearing. Yeah, I think so too. And there was none of that, but I guess maybe, maybe I've been Judd Apatowized. You know? <laughs> and so I expect these guys to have some redeeming qualities, but oh, I think about some of the movies I liked in the eighties and part of it was that there were no redeeming qualities to some of these people. That was, and also, I, you know, I see a lot of movies for what I do and maybe there's something to be, I mean, you and I both are saying, Oh, I expected this to happen and that to happen. And we feel a little sad about it, but maybe it's actually kind of cool that, that the movie didn't, live up to that or didn't sort of play out in the way we expected it to play out. Maybe there's something, maybe that's a freshness to it. I'm no, just kind of playing devil's advocate. No, you're, well, no, you're 100% right. Cause this is one of the most successful films in American history. So, yeah, that's right. you know, I, clearly my point of view isn't, isn't the prosperous point of view, but the, I, I just think it, for me, it's unavoidable. That's how I view movies. And so I'm viewing mm-hmm. it. Like, although I have to say that I'm kind of changing my view based on some of your analysis here, kind of seeing another side to it. Um, I think one of my favorite parts of that toga party scene is the folk singer and John Belushi. Again, another point, (laughs) which would have been way more hilarious if he never talked. Yes. And he goes, the folk singer singing a ridiculous folk song Uh and he just grabs his guitar and smashes it against the wall. And haven't we, all wanted to do that at some point with somebody in our class or some, but just that one guy that the artistic guy, he thinks he's so intelligent and deep. He plays the recorder or the <laughs> harp or something stupidly exotic, you know? <laughs> and, yeah. I think they should have made him a little more insufferable and that would have really had the payoff when he smashed the guitar bits. But couldn't you see Harold Ramis like his wish, his fantasy fulfillment in that scene. Like I can uh-huh. just imagine Harold Ramis being a college student in the fifties or sixties and knowing those guys. And he's probably just, he was probably a big nerd the whole time. You know, mm. he probably hated those guys because all the chicks would fawn all over them and they're dumb. They're not. <laughs> and so to me, I saw it as Harold Ramis kind of living out what he wished he could always do, which is to yeah. smash their stupid guitars over their heads and, and by the way, we, I, I want to just rewind it real quickly. Did you laugh at the I'm a zit John Belushi bit or, or had you seen that before? Because I, I think back then it was novel and I think that today with all our gross out humor, we would just kind of shrug our shoulders. Oh, yeah, he's spitting someone. Oh, no big deal. Okay, so I've seen that scene recreated over and over and over again by men and boys (laughs) (laughs) over the last three decades, but had, but had did had no idea that that's where it was from. So when I saw it, because I was already kind of annoyed that John, I wanted John Belushi to be a silent character. I didn't appreciate the moment as much because it was another spot where I was like, if he never talked at all, Mm -hmm. this would be way funnier if he just did that. If Kevin Smith could reboot this movie and, and take out the lines and make yeah. him a silent Bob ask. <laughs> yes, yes. Uh, so, yeah, I, I I didn't laugh, but it was an aha moment because I've seen mm. guys do that for so many years. Okay. And I see why guys thought it was funny. <laughs> yeah. yeah well, I, I think you pointed out something before that really resonates not just with this movie but all movies. There's a little bit of wish fulfillment. Like we'd always want to – 
we live our lives and we open doors for people and we're very polite and we we're polite to the people that we really don't like at all. And in this movie, the Deltas just didn't give a damn and they they would they would kind of crap on people they didn't like because they didn't like them. And I think there's something about that sense of anarchy that uh, is cathartic in a way. I think it's one of the many reasons why the movie is successful because we there's a little part of us, even as we're very disciplined, that want to be that unhinged. I think you're right, and I think that's why people like these kinds of movies still. We can safely live out, you know, through Bluto. Yes. <laughs> Our muse. Let's talk about that dance scene, though, because I think this is a classic moment at the Toga party, the shout mm-hmm. uh, dance scene. This is a classic moment. I've seen this in clips over the years, and I can remember being at school dances when I was a kid where they would play this, and then they might show the video of it up on the screen. It was always like a big moment, but I had never seen the movie. It didn't mean anything to me. Um, when you were re-watching it, what, to me, I was like, this dance scene is really alone. And there's nothing happening. Oh, I thought it was How joyous. Did, I, yeah. I thought it was just, I mean, the music was fun. I, I've been at parties where we do that stupid, we go lower and lower and lower. <laughs> and it was just sort of a, like a release. And it, and it wasn't... It wasn't the Deltas being jerks or being well, a little sloppy, but it was just, it was, I, I know, I, I just thought it was kind of a free-for-all kind of a thing. And I want to mention, I, I didn't know anything about Otis Day and the Nights. Yeah. And that was a pretend band they made up for the movie. And they hired uh, a black, it might have been Dwayne Jesse was sort of a character actor. The, so he, it plays Otis Day. He lips, lip syncs the song. Someone else sings it. And then he went on to create a band of his own called Otis Day and the Nights. He got the rights from the movie, and he's been touring probably ever since. It's the craziest story. So he can sing. He does sing sort of like those oldie songs, but that wasn't his voice, and he was just an actor for hire, but he just kind of rode with the, with the phenomena of the movie. I love this country. <laughs> it's, it's a God bless America. Story, only in America can you do that. I mean, right. it's like you can't write that kind of stuff. Oh, yeah. you know what? Good for him. You know, made a living off wanna, of that one thing. I know we're not there yet, but I really want to ask you about the when they when they see the band again at that all yeah, black bar. I, got stuff to I had say. lots of thoughts about that. <laughs> I got stuff to say. We'll, we'll get there. Let's yeah. <laughs> well, let's move on because I do want to talk a little bit more about this party scene because we see Larry the Everyman. He's he met this hot chick at the grocery store, invited her. He's gonna like lose his virginity. That's his goal. And then Dean Wormer's wife shows up and. Stratton, what was his nickname again? I can't remember. He's the uh, main Otter, guy. Too. Right? Otter takes her up to his bachelor pad and seduces her. And we get this really fun contrast between Larry and the grocery store girl awkwardly <laughs> trying to navigate sex. And she's really drunk. Uh-huh. And then Mrs. Wormer and, Ot- and Otter and he's seducing her. You know, but even that's a little bit silly. Like he's still a college boy and she's this mature woman, but that was, was interesting. But then uh, Larry's girl passes out before he can get to second base. And then he has that little angel and devil on his shoulder. And they have this whole conversation. Basically it's a conversation about whether or not he should rape her while she's drunk. 
Yeah, talk about things you couldn't even come anywhere near. No, no way. No, especially considering what we find out about her later. Right. And oh, and by the way, what does the devil say when the devil loses the argument? Oh, homo. Homo. (laughs) Just the 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 icing on the you couldn't do this today cake. No, I wrote it down in my notes. I'm like, the devil just called him a homo because he didn't want to rape the drunk girl. It, yeah, oh it was definitely a moment made for a show like this. Yeah. No way. No oh, and way. I, I will say, thank goodness he decided to listen to the angel, not Me the devil. Me too. I was so scared. He was the one really true blue, sweet, nice, gentle soul. And if he's going to start doing things with a, a passed out girl, I'm like, oh, no, don't go there. Yeah. No, that was, I was, I was like, oh, no, what if he does? I'm like, this movie will not stand up. But he didn't. He Phew. listened to his angel. Yeah, few. He didn't rape the girl, and he was even so kind as to push her home in a shopping cart. <laughs> that was very sweet and gentle. <laughs> that was nice. <laughs> I mean, what what dad doesn't dream of seeing his daughter on his oh, in a shopping cart? <laughs> oh, honey, there you are. Oh man, so that was cute. But um, and then we see them. Now it's time for the trial, for the hearing. At school for the, I guess it's a hearing on whether or not the deed's going to give them one more chance. And each side has to defend. So it's the bougie frat boys against the loser deltas. And it's this hearing with the, you know, the dean and some other administrators and everybody gets to make a a speech. Point of parliamentary procedure. Don't screw around. They're serious this time. Take it easy. I'm in pre-law, man. Thought you're pre-med. What's the difference? But the one thing I did notice in this scene, Christian, is that Kevin Bacon is one of the student quote lawyers. He's actually uh-huh. sitting at the defense table helping form the form their argument. And I thought, gosh, is this Kevin Bacon's first role as a saucy, stuck-up lawyer? Is this a prequel to A Few Good Men? That's right. That's right. Maybe. The spirit. The spiritual prequel. Maybe this is like what Chip went on to do. He joined the military. No, I have to say, I didn't love this scene. It didn't seem to have a real comic payoff to me. It seemed very, uh, even comedically over the top with how draconian the the, the, the dean was. I just didn't, it didn't quite have anything for me. What what was your thoughts on the the scene? I, I said the same thing. I said exactly that thing. I said, where is my payoff here? Um, what is the purpose of this? What is the hearing even about? Or what what do they win if they win the argument? Now, I have to say, I did love Otter's speech, how he managed to turn it around to you guys are anti-American at the <laughs> yeah. end. I thought that was kind of clever. But again, they stormed out and it was like, well, what are the consequences here? What's happening? What, what did, did that scene do to advance... Anything. And by this time, I've given up on a larger plot. I'm starting to understand what this movie is. But still, at that point, I was like, this is just filler. That's the first time I looked at how much time was left in the movie. And we oh, were still 46 minutes <laughs> away from the ending. And I'm we had like, a lot to go. I was not enjoying it. I really you wasn't. Know, I, I thought that was a moment where the Deltas could summon something credible to defend themselves. 
and even and, and maybe kind of turn the tables on the bad guys for a moment. And the closest we got to it was the the otter speech, which, which was a little clever, but it didn't it didn't really have a zing to it. So yeah, I I didn't. It seemed like a lost opportunity. I, I thought they, I thought there could have been a better something. I'm not sure what like, what that would be, but it just didn't quite didn't quite complete the circle for me. I felt like this was an opportunity to give me a reason to like these guys, even just a yeah, little. Yeah, Like, he could yeah. have got up and gave the speech about being the outsider. Like, the same kind of speech he gave when they were trying to talk about letting Fatty in, you know? Like, uh-huh. hey, we're, we're different, but we shouldn't be held to the same standards as everyone. Like, we're a diverse uh-huh. campus. and we, You know, whatever. Yeah, a little rally a message moment that could still have some humor, but make me feel like I do want to be on these guys' uh-huh. side, yeah, you know. Yeah. And so, yeah, it was a missed opportunity. But in the world of the movie, it was just another opportunity to give the guys a reason to do the next thing, which was uh-huh. road trip. Yeah, this is where we're going to get to the part you wanted to talk about. Yeah, they you go, go on this road got- trip. <laughs> Yeah, I want to get you. I have a little backstory that I read about involving Richard Pryor, but you you set the scene. Okay, so they get in the car. They go. They they force Fatty to use his brother's sweet ride, and they go on a road trip with a bunch of beers. They make a stop. There's a little gag of like they stop at at this girl's college to try to pick up some dates. Which I was like, okay, Boone has a steady girl, Fatty has a steady girl, and they're going out to cruise for dates, like. They're going out to get laid, basically. And then later on, Boone gets mad at Karen Allen for sleeping with her professor. And it's like, dude, why is that okay for you but not her? But I guess maybe in the world of 1962, it's fine. There's a little gag where they stop at this girl's college. Otter makes up this story about being engaged to this girl who turns out she's dead. And he gets, like, pity sex out of that. But the real meat of this is they get... They get some dates. They get them four girls to agree to go out with these strange men. And I guess they're just cruising for a spot and and stop at the first place they see. And it turns out it's a black nightclub. And they walk in and it's all black people and they are jamming out. And there's Otis Day and his band and they're singing. And they, these six or these nerdy, I guess it's eight of them, uh, white college kids walk in and the music stops you know the record so it's like <laughs> that's right and everybody just stares at them and otter says we're definitely gonna die and i'm like what <laughs> i'm like hang on and the whole scene is about them being scared for their lives in this black club there's some gags I mean, it's really blatant. There's a gag where, like, they ask one guy, like, oh, are you in college? And I guess the joke is that he could never be in college because he's a black guy. And then they uh-huh. um, force themselves on their dates. And, of course, there's these – these black guys have superhuman strength. And instead of just <laughs> – instead of just inviting these black women – have superhuman strength. <laughs> yes. Instead of just inviting these women to dance, you know, and, and escorting them out of the booth, they <laughs> physically rip the table out from its screws – um, and the whole scene is just them being terrified of these scary black people, but out of control. And I was like, hold on. How in the hell did this scene make it into this movie? What, you know how it happened? I do. The, you tell the, us. The, you the tell studio us. didn't want was aghast at the scene. They ran it, the sc- screenplay past Richard Pryor, 
and he gave it his thumbs up just that I think the quote was something like white people are crazy or something like that. Yes. He said, this 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 movie is hilarious and white people are fucking crazy. That was his quote. (laughs) That was from Tim Matheson who reported that. Yeah. uh, Yeah. So, and I have to say, I didn't go into it with the, with the PC lenses. I just think that it doesn't work. It's not that funny. You mentioned the superhuman black thing, which is bizarre. And in a way, you know, they were the outcasts and misfits it would have been interesting to show that at, in 1962, black people in, in parts of our culture were outcast because of their skin color. I mean, there was there was lots of things you could do with it, and I, I just don't think it, it connects. I, I don't know. I just – I wasn't offended by it. I just, I just thought it failed. I, I agree. I actually I, – I looked a little differently at that scene when I discovered the Richard Pryor fact – and actually, did make me feel a little better to know that Ivan Reitman was like, no, <laughs> we're not. Or, you know, the studio heads were like, no, we're not putting this in. I'm like, OK, well, at least somebody was thinking, you know, but um, I think you're right. This is when I went back and I did go back and actually look at it again after I found that out. And I thought, OK, maybe this is 2018, Kira, not understanding racial humor at this time uh-huh. in American culture, pop culture. This time being 1978, not, not 1962. And that maybe those references were funny because they really hadn't been explored before. The idea of white people having this irrational fear of black mm-hmm. people or having these crazy notions of what black people do and don't do and who they are. And, and um, so I thought maybe I'm just not understanding if Richard Pryor thought it was funny so and he was funny, so maybe I just don't get the but I think you're right, it was a missed opportunity. That scene could have it, you, you, you know what? You know what, Christian? This it, it's like the adventures and babysitting scene. When they go into the blues club and then they end up being like embraced by those people and like that's, they do that's the, the thing on stage. Yeah. The joke is they go in there all, all these white people who don't who don't co-mingle with black people when they finally do they're scared and they think all these horrible things and then the black people just treat them like anyone else because they like jazz music or they like r&b yeah that's that's the natural payoff here and there's i think you can milk that for comedy but having the superhuman black guy and then also the other guy at the bar who who pops open his his um his knife yeah (laughs) where did that come from i mean it was it was very strange and just a quick note the um there's a pretty good movie out on Netflix a few weeks ago called A Futile and Stupid Gesture, which is a line from this movie, and it's all about the creation of National Lampoon magazine. Oh, yes. And in the movie, they kind of are embarrassed to say that the entire creative team behind the magazine was white, and they kind of make a joke off it. Well, you know, this was less in, enlightened times, but the people behind that magazine were behind this movie. And I think that they were in sort of the, in their own cultural bubble where they thought they were liberal and hip, but they didn't even understand the culture that they were riffing on in a way. Yeah. I, I think it, it it just speaks to maybe their naivete about it. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I don't have a problem with the scene existing. You can make any kind of scene you want. You can make a, a tone deaf scene. Go go at it. But I do think I do think it's a it's a it's a one of the worst movie, parts of the movie. Yeah, I was I didn't laugh. I, 
again, I'm like you. I didn't go into it with like my PC lens. I generally don't go into humorous movies like that. I love comedy. I love offensive comedy. I think that's the best comedy, um, whether it's offending my own sensibilities or someone else's. But I, I have to say, yeah, this did. I was like, I, I don't know. I, I was uncomfortable with it. <laughs> I was very uncomfortable with it. Although it did make me, and I do think you're right. I, a lot of the parts of this movie, I picture Harold Ramis writing uh-huh. and he wrote this based on his college experience. And so I think that I can imagine Harold Ramis being a young Jewish guy growing up at that time period and really not really understanding black culture and it being something that was mythical almost. Yeah. yeah. So in that respect, I can see how that got me. Yeah, but it was very uncomfortable. And then they left their dates. Those the, the, with the scary <laughs> black people. <laughs> yeah. And then they just took off and left those girls to figure out yeah. how to not get raped and cut by these <laughs> scary. Oh, black and by people. the way, we kind of glossed over how they picked up the girls. You mentioned it, but that was the most, uh, be- most um, prolonged single gag to to power a scene. <laughs> I mean, he's going on and he doesn't know the girl's dead and she is dead and he clearly did research to find out at this girl's name. Like I'm thinking, that's exhausting. That whole that whole scene was just. The- I think if they took that entire thing out of the movie, it would be streamlined and it'd be better. Yeah, I. What, you know, yeah. Why couldn't it have just been a thing of? I mean, clearly, what they wanted to get to was the club. Yeah. And yeah. so why did, yeah, why did we need, we could have, he, they could have brought those girls from campus, you know, yeah, exactly. could have been just from one of the sororities. Like, oh, I lined up these dates for us. Let's, yeah, we didn't need that. It was the whole, oh, friends dead, but I'll comfort you. It was, yeah. again, maybe a little bit of wish fulfillment on Harold Ramis's part. Even though I know he didn't write the whole movie, but a lot of this mm-hmm. is based on his script. Um, I'm trying to, there's just a lot of vignettes here and I'm trying to move us forward because we're running out of time. But we do see that Karen Allen's character, Katie, has slept with Donald Sutherland. Boone catches her. He goes over to her house. Turns out, well, she's succumbed to the seductions of the mature professor novelist. But there's a great Donald Sutherland buns shot. <laughs> I'm like, oh my gosh, Donald Sutherland's buns. <laughs> I just thought that was funny. I was like, oh, that's Go cute. Mr. Skin, you could just find it right here. Yeah. Well, I did read a little tidbit, an interview with Karen Allen on the 35th anniversary of this movie. And she said that in that scene, they wanted her to be, you know, they wanted a bun shot of her. And she uh-huh. didn't want, she felt uncomfortable. She didn't want to do any nudity. And so Donald Sutherland said, you know what? If you want buns, I'll give you buns. You know, let oh, Karen do that. what she wants to do. So he, the reason he did that is because she felt uncomfortable. So he said, I'll do it. That's a great moment. Yeah, I thought that was cool. And, and I, I think she actually did. Now, I didn't notice in the movie. They must have cut it. But she said, I actually did get nude for, or like hmm. take off my bottoms for that. But all we needed was... Donald Sutherland's buns. That was a really great treat. (laughs) Um, And Boone's upset, which again, I'm like, dude, you just did this whole night where you went and got dates. You know, like why he's been spending this whole time 
like trying to get laid in other ways. Yeah, yeah, get off your high horse, please. Yeah. yeah. But anyway, he was hurt or whatever. Um, let's see, the dean, they fail the test. The dean's like, this is it, you're out. Um, they're very depressed, you know. Now, like, he goes, that it's that scene where he calls all of them into his office and he goes over their GPAs. <laughs> like, three of them have a 0. 0. Um <laughs> And it's just miserable. But that's where we get this very famous line. Again, that for me, this is a revelation, having heard this line quoted so many times, but not understanding where it comes from. And he says, fat, drunk, and stupid is no way to go through life, son. That's <laughs> classic. Yeah. I, I just, now I know. Now, <laughs> <laughs> now I know what it is. Um, so, this, again, this is another point, Christian, where I said... I, there's just holes in this for me that it's making it hard for me to enjoy the story. Like they're really upset that they're getting their charter pulled and they're getting kicked out of school. But I'm like, why is this any surprise? Like, why do we feel sorry for these guys? What am I supposed to pity them for? The whole movie has been about what losers they are. And the Dean's been very clear <laughs> about what was going to happen. Mm -hmm. And they didn't do anything like they didn't like in old school. They had the Olympics. They had the competitions, you know, and they had to win the competitions and they didn't. There was nothing that they were doing so that they were the underdogs. You know, you know I mean? even in back to school, Ronnie Dangerfield studies his butt off to pass those tests at the end. Remember, they uh, yeah, they quiz him when he's, they're going to kick him out of school and he has to like really cram and study hard and prove he can he can at least keep up with the the academic record and they don't, they don't even try that here. Yeah, no, they didn't. So I, you know, that was annoying to me. And this is where we get that great Belushi speech, yep. which is a classic. Again, like I say, I think that moment would have been absolutely hysterical if he had never said a word up uh -huh. until that point. Over? Did you say over? Nothing is over until we decide it is. Was it over when the Germans bombed Pearl Harbor? Forget it, he's rolling. And it ain't over now. And they'd be shocked, ju not just by what he's saying, but by the fact he's actually speaking. Exactly. And he can still be uh -huh. stupid, you know, when he has a thing uh -huh. in the end where he just, it just devolves at the end. But that <laughs> even that has, I think it gives it, it punches it up a little if we've never heard him before. Yeah, and also the music in that sequence yeah. is classic as well. Another 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 example of how the music really echoes everything and makes everything better. Yes, absolutely. Um, they decide they're not going to go down without a fight. Um, <clears throat> I do want to talk about Larry, our everyman, goes over to his girlfriend's house. He, he, he wants to finish this. He's, yeah. He wants to finish what he started. He goes over at night and he throws rocks at her window and he breaks the window. And I have in my notes, there's so much broken glass in this movie. <laughs> <laughs> every, like, every scene, something breaks. Uh -huh. um, and this is where we find out, oh, she's actually only 13. Yikes. Yeah, that rape scene took on a whole <laughs> yeah. different thing. I was, and apparently they did film her topless. And before the movie came out, some, um, they passed, what do they call them? Like 
decency laws or whatever. They passed some oh. decency laws in the film industry. So you couldn't mm-hmm. depict nudity in a child under 16 perceived or real. Oh, so inter- they had interesting to cut wrinkle it. there. Yeah. So they had to cut it, but she was going to be top. They filmed her topless. And, yeah. and then she was 13 and that was, she did not look 13, but maybe 13 no, looked no, no. different in 1962 <laughs> or 1978. I don't know. <laughs> But yeah, that was like, ooh, okay, I'm I'm really glad they didn't go that way then. But uh, the guys had to plan they're going to they're going to crash this annual homecoming parade. That the dean has been in cahoots with the mayor and money's changed hands. They're bad guys basically. That's all you need yeah, to know. Yeah. They're just bad guys. And uh, they're going to do some tomfoolery at the um at the homecoming parade. So we see them kind of hatching plans and everybody taking their spots. I didn't understand how the Dean was such a celebrity. I mean, people were cheering. They were like, the Dean! Yeah. Ah! <laughs> I'm like, wow, he's got a huge fan base. <laughs> it's a small town. I guess so. Um, I have in my notes here, this movie posits that marching bands are lemmings with no individual agency. That was a really dumb gag where they lead the marching band into the into the alley and they keep marching for the rest of the movie. I, I mean, I don't even... It just seemed really stupid, even by this movie's standards. I did giggle though when they panned back to it. They cut back to it after ten minutes, and they were still there <laughs> in the corner. I did kind of giggle, but yeah, I was like, "Oh, he pushes the guy out of the way, and then takes the baton and leads them into the alley, as if none of them can see what's ahead of them." Right, right, yeah. and see that they're not in the parade route. But that's what they needed to do to make this scene work. The scene is them basically blowing up the homecoming parade. I mean, it's just pure chaos. I have. This is not a prank. This is a terrorist attack. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, just mass chaos. They bring down power lines. You know, they crash the car into stands where people are sitting. They (laughs) drive cars without visual aid. I mean, (laughs) like they can't see. It's just maybe I'm just too much of a mom. But I was like, how many people got hurt in this scene? It's it's over the top. I mean, I, I think you have to go big in a comedy sometimes, and this is their solution. Again, I don't think this is a classic ending by any stretch. I think the last minute, uh, this is what happened to so-and-so characters, was kind of funny, and I think that's a good yeah. rap. Yeah, I thought, that was, I thought that was funny, too. This scene did remind me of Porky's, which we have done on this show. And... Uh-huh. Um, I think that guy Larry is in Porky's. I'm not mistaken. Mm. I think he's actually in it. But um, that's how that ended too with this over the top, like mass destruction. Like, surely people are dead in this like <laughs> hilarious scene. Um, and it reminded me of Porky's in that way. Um, I did have that. I think the sequel to this movie is actually would actually be a drama about how the town rebuilt after they buried their innocent dead from that. <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> you're, you're going pretty dark. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, like that's the cool thing to do is like reboot classic movies, but with a deal, like they did Batman. You yeah. Know. Darker and grittier. Yeah. I could make it work. We bring in Jim Belushi. He's always a great stand in for John Belushi, right? It's almost <laughs> the same thing. I think he's free. <laughs> that's why. <laughs> Hollywood keeps trying to tell me it's the same thing. Um, uh, oh, okay, Christian. I'm not going to lie. Flat Kevin Bacon made me laugh. That's it. I did. 
<laughs> which was a little bit of a weird, like it was a surreal visual yes. gag, and the movie didn't really have a lot of gags like that. It like was, that was at a place. Over the top, yeah. Yeah, it was at a place, but I still kind of laughed. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I did, I did like she jumping on the uh, the banner and ripping it down and kind of snuggling up to the girl and yeah, riding off to the sunset. That was that was that was a good payoff too. Right. Again, another thing you couldn't do now because. Hashtag me too, and very aggressive. Um, I did like. They showed, it, showed her liking it though at the end, like of maybe, maybe he had charmed her. But then to set that up, you'd have to maybe have them have a little silent flirtation, even while she's being like she's like, "Ew, you're gross," and then she kind of lingers a look at him a little bit, like you know, like she's intrigued, even though she thinks he's gross. Yeah, I thought the same thing. In fact, I kind of thought that, that was going to happen in the cafeteria scene. Uh-huh. And we never got anything like that. But I kind of yeah. thought that we were going to see this, like, stuck-up girl. Like, all she wants from stuck-up Republican Greg is sex. And he can't <laughs> give it to her. So I had this idea that, like, she'd see, well, these guys are virile and yeah, masculine yeah. and aggressive. And that's kind of what uh-huh. I like. But, again, a moment that didn't really come to fruition. It didn't really pay off. Yeah. Now, you and I are being pretty critical here in a lot of stuff. And I know. I, I think. I know that's, but I'm, I wanted to say, I think generally speaking, and I, and I feel as we have a different genres. Like, I cut horror movies a lot of slack as far as the script and the acting, because sometimes the acting is a little bit rough around the edges, and sometimes the script, script can be a little rough around the edges as well. I do think with comedies, you can cut a few logical corners to get the laugh, to get the sort of the scene in place. But I, at the same time, I think a better written comedy. Would, would sort of connect those dots. I mean, I think it, it makes it a better movie, you know? Yeah, I, and again, and that's what this show is. You know, that's what this, we're doing. We're picking apart things that the general viewer is not going, you, that's not how you sit down and watch a real movie. And it's not how I sit down and watch every movie. But I, I just, and knowing what it takes to make a movie mm-hmm. from beginning to end and to get it finished and to get the public to see it, you know, anybody that gets anything made has my automatic respect. So I, I just think I'm always fascinated to dig into the details of films yeah. and what doesn't work for me. Um, I did like how we got to see what they all ended up as. Of course, Bluto ended up as a senator, <laughs> which I liked. And Stratton was a gynecologist. <laughs> and I was like, oh, very good. Um, do you happen to know what the budget for this movie was? I thought I read $2.8 million. Does that sound yeah, you the get the same thing? About three million. Do you know yeah. how much it grossed in the U.S.? You know, I read 141, but I don't know if that was worldwide or U.S. or That's final. That's U.S. Or, 141 yeah. okay. million dollars. That's a profit deal. That is huge. Yeah. It's hard to. It's really hard to put that in perspective for mm-hmm. somebody who doesn't really analyze box office numbers or but. To have a budget of three million, and opening—I mean, opening weekend was a little middling. It did like two hundred and seventy thousand dollars opening weekend, but what happened wow. was it built. Like it didn't yeah. just leave theaters; it stayed and stayed and stayed, and people kept going to see it. And the buzz just built, and then they ended up spending another four million on publicity because they saw, oh, people are liking this. So yeah, they actually paid more for publicity than they did for the film. Hmm. And that clearly paid off. But to go from $3 million to earn $141 million? 
Yeah, and I think back then there were, I think the movie release schedule was more casual. Like today, if a movie doesn't open big, it's almost always troubled. Right. But I think back then films hung out in theaters for a while, so it did. It it had a chance to get to have its legs. So I mean, it clearly did. But it's just interesting because maybe if it was released today, it would open small and get shuffled away, and then all of a sudden they, people would find it on home video or streaming. Yeah, like Wet Hot American Summer or something. Yeah, or the or uh, Office Space. Right. Yeah, something that just kind of builds after it's already gone. But now, yeah, you do have to catch those opening weekend views because there's just so many places for us to put our entertainment time and money. So have the opportunity to let these things linger, as you say, as much as they used to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, That role of of D-Day, which is Bruce McGill, was originally written for Dan Aykroyd. Yeah. Yeah. Which would have been interesting. But Lauren Michaels wouldn't let him do it. He wanted him that Saturday. And I think they didn't want it to be a Saturday Night Live vehicle, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah, well, it so all worked out. It all worked out. Um, I did read a sequel was planned that would have taken place during the 1969 Summer of Love and would have involved the Deltas reuniting for Otter's wedding, but... More American Graffiti came out in 1979 and it bombed and Universal stalled the project and it was scrapped for good after Belushi died. Very interesting. I didn't know that. So Yeah. And did Belushi die in 82? 82. Oh, that's a a million years ago. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I have to say, but I'm I'm the Jim Belushi generation. I'm not the John Belushi generation. (laughs) So I don't have a lot of Belushi references. I'm sorry to say I'm not a fan of the Blues Brothers. I have tried. Another thing I just don't get. I think it's largely a guy movie. Yeah, I don't know. Watching him in this movie, he was a force of nature. He really was something special. And I've seen some, and the names are escaping. I've seen some movies where there was the chunky, wild and crazy fat guy. And it's so bad. And so repulsive and so completely unfunny, you think, oh, that's why Belushi was Belushi, because he could bring something really magical to it. So it was very just, engaging. Yeah, I mean, raising his eyebrows and there's one that when he looks at the camera at one point and breaks the fourth wall briefly. <laughs> I mean, that's not easy. You know, the, the Kevin Spacey, who's been banished to uh uh, some Siberian <laughs> landscape for what he's up to. You know, he could do that in House of Cards, but not every actor can pull it off. And he does a lot here. And just the way he moves his body and he, a lot of scenes where he's trying to be a spy and he's shuffling about. Yes, I was Very just going to mention stuff. that. Yeah, yeah, that was what I was going to say, where he's like being a spy and he's like creeping and he's doing it, looking this way and that way. And it's so utterly yes. ridiculous. He's so silly, but I, I couldn't take my eyes off him. Yeah. Or oh, when, he, when he's trying to cheer up Flounder yeah. and Flounder's depressed about the, the car being destroyed and he's he's making faces and mugging and being silly. And it's very cute and endearing and funny. I just he he's the whole show here. And, and yeah, you can't make anything like this without a John Belushi. That's for sure. No, I don't. I mean, do you think this movie would have been what it is without him? It It does a lot to shake up the culture. So there's that. But you need you need him in here. I mean, he is the. He's the lightning rod. Uh, I don't know what, yeah. what happens without him. No, I, I agree. I, um, I, I think it was the first time where I was like, oh, I get, I get it. Like, I get John mm-hmm. Belushi. And it made, you know, and it's sad because it does make you wonder, you know, what would he be doing 
today? Yeah. What would he? Oh, yeah. What would his career look like? I mean, would he have turned into a horrible person like Chevy Chase, or <laughs> would he huh. have? you know, gone on to have a twilight in his career where maybe he did some dramatic acting. I mean, you could see like the base for all of that. In yes. His performances. Yeah. He could be very, he could be a very interesting 60 something guy doing things where he has that energy that he always had, but he channels it in different directions. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, the world definitely lost a great talent when they lost, um, John Belushi. I, I have to say that I, I didn't enjoy watching this movie. I checked the, Runtime quite a few times as I was watching it, but hearing some of the case that you make and hearing some of your, you know, ideas about what was really happening and what was really going on, I think I, I, I've changed my mind about the cultural significance of this. And mm -hmm. clearly, a movie that cost three million to make and went on to earn 141 million, you know, clearly I'm in the minority. And also, I, I do think it's hard to judge a movie like this today if you haven't seen it, because you literally have 40 years of hype that you're dealing with. And, and, and comedy is not only just subjective, but comedy is very uh, – it's flexible over the years. What, what we find funny today, I guarantee in 40 years, we're not going to find that funny in, in down the road. So I think there's that. And also the fact that this – set the stage for many things, for careers, to types of comedy, lines and, and templates that we see again and again. So I, I think from that perspective, it's an achievement. If we were to make this movie today, who would we put it in? Who would be John Belushi's character? Gosh. Um, you know, I'm thinking Jonah Hill, but I don't think he gets as big and broad. Uh, you know, Chris Farley's gone. I don't know who's a, a sort of a live wire like that. I'm trying to think of the young the comedians. Yeah. Uh, there's Maybe. a guy named Bobby Bobby Moynihan on Saturday Night Live. I think he may have left the show. Who's kind of heavy set and likable and funny and charming. Oh yes. But but uh, doing the Belushi thing, that's a that's a fool's errand. You really can't cast yeah. anyone in that role. Yeah. I don't know. Who who would you pick? I think I think the I had the same issue. I no but nobody. I don't think there's yeah. I well, I think that if we did make this movie today, and I said this earlier, it would be all women, so it would be uh -huh. more like a bridesmaids type movie, and yeah. John Belushi would be Kristen Wiig or a younger version of a Kristen Wiig these days. Uh, I am not. Like so, I, I would not be surprised if they if they remade this movie with a gender swap. I could uh, totally see that. We and, have and not learned be our lesson from <laughs> Ghostbusters. <laughs> no, we, have, we have not, clearly. Well, they're doing, you know, they're doing that Ocean's Eleven or Ocean's whatever. Eight, I think. Eight reboot with all <laughs> ladies. And you know what? I watched the Ghostbusters movie. I was as put out as everybody else was that they were remaking it for women. But I didn't care much about the PC nature of it. I just thought... They don't need to remake this, but I'm going to watch it and give it a chance. And part of the problem with this new trend we're seeing of like gender swapping or race swapping or whatever, this was Ava DuVernay's problem with The Wrinkle in Time, is that people concentrate on the social commentary aspect of it so much, it's at the expense of a good script. Like the Ghostbusters was all about watching Melissa McCarthy say dumb things. Oh my goodness, there's my glasses. Oh my glasses are gone. Like <laughs> the whole movie is just her making dumb comments at inappropriate times. There's no humor written into it. 
Yeah, well, I think that the problem is that it's a distraction. But I think if that first Ghostbusters trailer came out and it was really funny, I think that distraction kind of goes away. Mm-hmm. But when that first trailer came out and it was just an absolute flop sweat disaster, people go, oh, yeah, this is just a gender swap. They're trying to get us in the theater for that. And they're not bringing the funny. And I think that's what killed the movie. Yeah, and, and so that's what I think would happen with Animal House. They turn it upside down, do a gender swap, and it just doesn't have. It wouldn't. It would all be all about that instead of just making a movie that people want to enjoy and laugh at. So I don't yeah. think this movie can be made not the way it is. I think it does get made from time to time over and over again in some of the yeah. examples we've mentioned already: American Pie, Van Wilder, um, PCU, old school, old school. Um, which I still think is kind of the best of its genre, if you ask me. It, it's a good one. And by the way, there's a new movie with Melissa McCarthy coming soon. I think it might be called Life of the Party. And I think it has shades of back to school with Roddy Dagefield, where oh. she goes back to school, I think, with her sort of semi-grown or da- grown daughter. I think. I have to double-check that. It, it seemed like – because they were going to remake Back to School with Bernie Mac, but poor poor guy yeah. died before they could do that because I – of all the th- all the people you can kind of reboot that, I thought, oh, I, I love Bernie Mac. Ah, oh, he was the best. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think, so I think that's it. Well, uh, would you recommend this film? Oh, I mean, I, it's hard not to. I mean, it, just to have a kind of a film literacy, you need to see it. I think there are some big laughs here. I think Belushi's performance alone is worth, worth watching it. But it is interesting from a culture perspective to see what's changed, what's the same what they could get away with, what they can't, which is a lot, and uh, explore. Uh, a, this is a, a an important movie in comedy. I know that sounds silly to say about drinking and debauchery, but it is. No, it spawned like the '80s. This was the '80s. That every comedy that came out in the '80s was a different version of this movie. That same mm-hmm. raunchy humor. I mean, I'm thinking of all yeah. the movies that I watched that I love. The Revenge of the Nerds series. You know, this gross-out humor, body raunchy. Like I said, a lot of the John Hughes films had a lot of these elements in it, mm-hmm. really inappropriate things. That was what they were doing all through the 80s when yeah. you were going to talk about college, raunchy college films. So it definitely is a groundbreaking film. I agree. I would recommend it. To, if you're interested in movies and comedy, you kind of have to see this movie. I mean, there's a lot of cultural references that make sense to me now that I've seen it for the first time. And it was groundbreaking. I just, for me, for Kira in 2018, I just, I didn't enjoy it. It wasn't up my alley, but I do appreciate um, its place in the canon of comic films. Two quick thoughts from me. One is, I didn't enjoy it as much as I thought I would. But conversely, the next day, I thought about it a lot. And I see so many new movies that as soon as I walk out of the theater, you could you could give me a truth serum and I could tell you what I just saw. Yeah. So I, I, it did stick with me in a ways. And I think that's that's a that's a good sign. No, that's a great sign. A memorable movie will always, you know, you'll always remember something from it. If it's a line, if it's a scene, if it's a shot. I mean, the best E.T. phone home, and, you know, like uh-huh. those things. They make their mark, and this movie definitely made its mark. Uh, I want to thank you, Christian, for taking time to chat with us. Um, How can people find you online? My website is hollywoodintoto.com because when you're stuck with a name like Toto, you've got to use it in some capacity. (laughs) And then my uh, podcast is every week, the Hollywood and Toto podcast, and my Twitter handle, just to be consistent, is at Hollywood in Toto. 
Great. And I am Kira Creates on Twitter. And you can find um, out more stuff about what we're doing on the podcast network over at phantomsway.com. Don't forget that we've got our Friday Fiction Challenge. We come out every Friday. You get a writing prompt. It'll be a picture. You have to write a 100-word story about it. It's loads of fun. So check that out. A new one every Friday. It's great for writers who are just looking to exercise their skills and brains. It's a great little challenge. And I'm really looking forward to you guys seeing um, the short film I've been working on for the last six months, which is a short film about Harriet Tubman called Minty. Um, We've wrapped and our teaser trailer is about to be released, I think tomorrow or Tuesday. So really excited about that. You can go find out more about that at TubmanMovie.com. Donate to the uh, GoFundMe so we can have some extra money for our post do some extra fancy stuff that we want to do. I want to appreciate everyone for tuning in. I want to thank you, Christian. I hope you'll come back and join us on another time. I had fun. Yeah, I, I like digging deep into this. And uh, I will be writing about your short movie at Hollywood and Toto as well. So I can't wait. I really can't wait for it. The trailer is like rad. I saw it today. I'm like, oh, my, even my 16-year-old son was like, oh, my gosh, it's like a real movie. I'm like, I know. <laughs> it's a real movie. It's crazy. So, uh, yeah. Well, I appreciate you taking the time. Um, and thank you for listening. And we'll catch you next week on How Inappropriate. Ciao. Sway. We're the counterculture. You just don't know it yet. Phantomsway.com.